0: Good morning everybody. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be here. Um, it's always good to be here. That's, I feel like it's such a cliche thing to say. Um, sometimes maybe it's not good to be here. I don't know. But today it is good to be here. I'm, I'm always excited um, to get to come back here. Uh, I, I think I know many or most of you, but if, if we don't know each other, I, my name is Josh. I am... Uh, I really grew up here in Harrisonville, did most of my growing up in this church, quite honestly. Um, So it's always special to get to to come back here. I live in Lee Summit, Missouri, with my wife and our two kids, uh, Micah and Caroline. They're seven and four. They are, none of them are here today. I I begged Candace to come, and she said, if I wanted to hear you drone on for 45 minutes, I would just ask you about the Chiefs' new offensive line or something. So no, that's not true at all. She actually wanted to come, and uh, I said, I, I... Encourage you to go to our church. Our church is actually, we're, we're in um, downtown Kansas City, and this is our first Sunday. We've been doing like a, a separate live stream kind of a thing and then a, an in person service for a very long time, and we've just finally said that's enough of that, and um, this is the first week it's all back together as one. So it just kind of happened to coincide that I'm here today, which is, which is wonderful, but I said, you know, I'd love it if you could go there. So, so the older I get, the more I, I know that people are less interested in seeing me and more interested in seeing my kids, so I'm sorry. Uh, this is what you got, this big hunk of coal up here. So, um, I know you guys, this church is in a state of, of transition. I know it has been for a long time. Um, it's, uh, it's a pretty remarkable thing, I feel like. It's, <laughs> I feel like it's hard enough to re- lead a church with a pastor sometimes. Uh, it's probably that much harder to, to do it without a, a pastor in place. And so anytime I'm here, anytime I talk to anybody who's here, who's a part of leadership or staff or running ministries or anything, um, I just want to commend you guys uh, for the work and the faithfulness and the dedication to not just to keep going, but to, to do well and to, to, to do a lot of things, even just to hear announcements of what's going on um, in this community. It, it, it's, it's really exciting. It's really cool. And I want to commend you also. I think what it takes to keep things going requires um, sort of a, just the kind of hard, faithful, consistent work that, that really has a lot to do with the kingdom of God. And that is really convenient for me because that's exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, Dave Cook and I are, are going to be doing kind of a tag team series through a book. It's called Seek First. It's by a man named Jeremy Treat. Uh, it's very good. I don't know how the schedule is going to work out exactly. So it's a three-part series. It may take six weeks. It may take two years. I don't know. We may, but we'd part one and then part two and then part three will be years and years down the road. I don't know. So we'll just kind of roll with that and see how it goes. But um, but the book is fantastic. Um, I would encourage any of you to, to try to get your hands on it um, and to take to take a look at it. It's really just a, a good a good read about the summary of what the what the kingdom of God is, uh, why it's important, what it means. I would say it's a pretty easy read. Yeah, it's easy for us when you're when you're brilliant like Mr. Cook and I. Yeah, it's it's easy for us. Um, but it's anyway, it's a good book. We're going to be going through that, so I'll, we'll kind of introduce that today and then. Um, get started whenever that happens, and however, whatever that looks like. One of the the tricky things when you're when you're going through a, a material like this is to not. It's not a book report, right? I know you don't want. We don't want to cram a million things and and make you feel like you're drinking out of a fire hose of of scripture and inspirational quotes. So we'll, we'll try to limit that as, as much as possible as we go through this. Uh, there may be a little bit of that inevitably this morning, um, but we're gonna, I think we'll kind of try to hit the highlights of, of what Jeremy Treat has to say and what I feel like God wants to say to us today. Um, so anyway, all that to say, again, I would encourage you to get your hands on a copy of this at some point. Um, it's, it's very good. So with that in mind, I'm just going to dive right in. Uh, no real Clever stories or anything like that. We're just going to get right down to the meat and potatoes. I hope that's okay. Uh, the title of our series, the title, of, I'm sorry, of our sermon today is Our First Allegiance. Uh, and we'll, we'll leave that up there for a minute. What are we talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God? I guess I want to start off with the question, and this is kind of a strange question, but if we wanted to share our faith with someone, but could only do it by writing a few terms on a post-it note, let's say, like you could only put 15 to 20 things written down what words or ideas would we write down to, to share with them like if this was the kind of the elevator speech of what your faith looks like and you only have so long to share what would what ideas would you really highlight if we were in a different setting I think I would probably put that question out there and and get feedback and um, just get a conversation going and see what people might say but uh, I was thinking about it myself and I thought we might say things like uh, sin holiness we talk about heaven and hell love, forgiveness, Scripture, Jesus, hopefully, uh, prayer, grace, faith, repentance, things like that. And, and the list could go on and on and on. And I don't know if that list feels right to you guys or not. But really the question, as I consider that, and, and in particular in the light of the, what we're talking about today, the real question I want to ask is where, if anywhere, would the idea of the kingdom of God kind of rank in that list? I don't know if that, if that makes sense or not. But if, if you're trying to... To write down the the big bullet points of your faith to share with somebody. Would we write down the kingdom of God if we were describing our faith? Well, I would suggest, um, whether we would or not, I think Jesus has something to say about that. Uh, In fact, I want to go ahead and look at several verses from Scripture. This first one is from Mark chapter 1. It'll be up on the screen. If if you want to turn to your Bibles, you can, certainly. But uh, this is Mark chapter 1. This is verses 14 and 15. These are actually the very first words that Mark records Jesus as saying as he begins his public ministry. It says this, Now after John, that's John the Baptist, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, here we have him speaking for the first time, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So that's interesting, so really his first statement as he begins his ministry has to do with the kingdom of God, okay? Now I hear what you're saying. You're saying, well, Josh, that's fine. He was starting something. He had to declare something. He had to announce something. What I really would like to know is what did he say as he was kind of wrapping up his earthly ministry? Maybe, let's just say, between uh, Easter, between the resurrection and the ascension. Well, I'm very glad you asked that. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says this. After his suffering, he presented himself to them. And this is between Easter and, and a couple of verses before he, he ascends into heaven. He presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Again, very interesting. I won't belabor this point, though it would be very easy to do. But it's just worth noting that Jesus essentially begins and ends his time in, in human ministry here on earth, preaching about uh, and proclaiming, among other things, certainly, but, but focusing clearly on the kingdom of God. Jesus mentions this idea, kingdom, far more, in fact, than he talks about forgiveness of sins, far more than he talks about grace, far more than he talks about belief in God, far more than he talks about what happens to us after we die. And in fact, there was only one thing that Jesus told his disciples that they should seek above everything else. And if he was talking to us today, I think there would be one thing that you and I should seek. And that's from our, our theme verse for today, Matthew six thirty three: Seek first his kingdom. His is God's there. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. They were talking about um, what it would take to make sure they were taken care of and had their needs met. And Jesus says, the first thing you need to seek is the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The idea, the kingdom of God, was clearly an idea that was of the highest importance to Jesus. So shouldn't it be of the highest importance to us? This is kind of a fun sermon-y little statistic. Uh, you, I, don't, I don't know how people find these. I, don't, I sure don't look this up. But you hear, you know, fear not to mention 7,093 times in the Old Testament. Like, I, don't know who, I don't know who keeps track of that necessarily, but, but here's one about this. The kingdom is talked about more than 80 times in the New Testament alone. So, shouldn't we be talking about it as well? And that's really, uh, Dave, if I can speak for you, I think what we want to do over the course of this series is, is talk about this. And as we move into it today uh, and kind of start this whole thing off, we want to start looking at questions like what is the kingdom? Where do we find it? And why? Does it matter? So we'll start with the first simple question. What is the kingdom of God? And uh, just kind of a heads up, I'm going to talk a lot about myself for the next little while, so I hope I don't lose too many of you, but I, I really think, I think there's a good chance uh, maybe some of what I, I've experienced might resonate with you, or I hope it does. I was fortunate enough to um, grow up here, I uh, grow up with many of you around me, and um, because with with church and with home, obviously and school, I just had a great kind of biblical foundation as I as I grew up and, and got older and uh, learned a lot of things and a lot of concepts that um, I sometimes I think I take them for granted that well every Christian who just grew up going to church should know this and I think I probably had a lot more people pouring a lot more wisdom and stuff into me than I than I realized. Um, but anyway, all that to say, I got, I got a great foundation. But one of the things, among many things, that I, I probably didn't understand and maybe still don't understand. One of those things is the kingdom of God. I never really had a good grasp, I think, on what in the world that was. I thought for a long time that it had something to do with the return of Jesus. Um, Some kind of almost like a mystical thing. Like I would have said, and I can remember kind of thinking these things, um, I'm sure it has something to do with the millennial reign and the beast coming out of the sea and the 70 weeks prophecy and things like that. And that may have been somewhat on the right track, but not really, and I think I was really missing the point entirely, Um, but then I got a little bit older and started reading the Bible for myself a lot more, and um, started paying attention a whole lot better on my own to what I was looking at, and I started, almost unfortunately, coming across a lot of references, a lot of those 80 references in the gospels about the kingdom of God, and I started to read Jesus saying that the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price, it's like a wheat field, It's like buried treasure. He says the kingdom of God is like leaven used to make dough. It's like a dragnet. And to be totally honest, none of that really helped at all, right? I don't know what a dragnet, I mean, I guess a dragnet was a TV show in the 50s and 60s as far as I knew, and I'm a a millennial, I don't know what leaven is, what what does that mean to me? Um, But just as a side note, I want to officially say, if you've ever read your Bible, even the New Testament, even the red letters in the New Testament, if you've read that and come away feeling like, I don't know what in the world that even meant, just know that you're not alone. I don't know if that's very comforting to be in the boat with me, but, um, but yeah, it, it happens. Even the disciples got, got Jesus wrong and, and missed the, the point sometimes, so don't feel badly if you've ever furrowed your brow at something like, what is the kingdom of God? What is he talking about? But all that to say, I never spent uh, sleepless nights thinking about what it might be, but I definitely had no kind of grasp on what was meant whenever I'd read about the kingdom of God. Until a good friend of mine in Springfield kind of helped answer that question for me uh, a number of years ago. He was reading through uh, Matthew, and he'd come across a lot of the, the things I just, just mentioned a second ago um, about uh, what the kingdom of God is like, and he was sharing with me what he was learning. And this was kind of a humbling experience because to that point, I had felt like I was kind of the, the, the lead as far as our faith. You know, he was, he was a very faithful guy, but I was like, ah, oh, I... His name's Cameron, you know, I'm, Cameron looks up to me, and and this was the moment where I was like, oh, shoot, I have to confess to Cameron that I don't know what I'm talking about, Um, and I asked him, I said, you know, I don't know what that means, and um, I don't think I know what the kingdom of God really is. I think the ideas maybe I had, I'm, I'm just not sure, and his answer was super succinct and incredibly helpful. He said, you know, I think it's basically all of us, when we are living like Jesus is our king. And honestly, that's a pretty solid definition. We could probably stick with that and um, be good for, for the day, to be honest with you. But I wanna flesh that out just a little bit. The phrase kingdom of God could just as easily be translated the reign of God. That's R-E-I-G-N, not, not reign, but the, the, the reign of God. Specifically, that reign is exercised, like, like Cameron said, through us. It's exercised through the way that we live. And as Jesus taught us to pray, we, we ask for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So all that to say, you put all that together and you really have the definition that, uh, that actually Jeremy Treat puts forth in his book right here. He says the kingdom of God is this. God's reign through God's people over God's place. I want to just sit with that for just a second. God's reign through God's people over God's place. This is one of the preeminent ideas of Jesus' ministry. This is one of the things that he focused on. This is what he talked about more than maybe some of the things. I think we'd be very surprised if we, if we looked at how much this was what he was focusing on. Because I think we just kind of assume he was focusing on, well, forgiving my sins. And then he was. and But focusing on uh, just following you know, rules or being kind to people. And all that's true. But that's kind of the... The meat and potatoes. So we read that. God's reign through God's people over God's place. That's really neat. What does that mean? You know, I mean, that that sounds real quippy, but what does that even look like? Well, to a degree, again, that's what we want to discuss over the course of the next few sermons here. So I I hope that you can stick with us for that. Uh, But for our purposes today, I'm just going to kind of give us, I think, a number of ideas that probably could be sermons on their own. Uh, but for the, but for now, we'll just present them as some of the sort of the characteristics of the kingdom of God. And these are all ripped right out of the gospels, they're ripped right out of, of Jeremy Treat's book. And it should be mentioned first uh, that this is a kingdom that is pretty counterintuitive for the most part to, to us. Um, it doesn't fit the narrative that we a lot of times grow up just kind of learning about what the world is and how the world is supposed to work. Um, It just doesn't doesn't fit the way we look at things, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. But this is not a kingdom of consumption, right? This is not a kingdom of acquisition. This is not a kingdom of comfort. This is not a kingdom of exploitation or of self-promotion or of self-advancement. This is not a kingdom of self-reliance. It runs counter to so many aspects of our lives that the larger culture around us has sort of convinced us that we should pursue, right? The larger culture tells us we should acquire and we should consume and we should... Pursue comfort, and we should exploit, and we should promote ourselves, and so on and so on. And honestly, I suspect, and I at least see this sometimes in myself, I suspect that, that most of that message is so subtle uh, and so constant from the time we're 1 to 100 that we don't even really notice it's there. And ultimately, I think we don't even realize when we buy into that, that message from the larger culture, right? That, no, you're supposed to advance yourself. You're supposed to pursue your own needs, this message of consume, exploit, serve yourself is so much of a part of our reality, we don't even notice it's there. It's like the joke, uh, the, the, the old fish is swimming past the two young fish and he says, hey, how's the water, boys? And he, he goes on by and one of the young fish looks at the other and says, what's water? Right? I didn't say it was a funny joke, it's just an old joke. Uh, but the, the point is, it's, it's like this is the water we swim in. It's so present and all around us and, and almost invisible to us, we don't even, we're not even aware that it's there. But the kingdom of God has really no place for those things. It flips that culture on its head entirely. This is not a kingdom of just follow your heart, you know, find your best life now. God's kingdom, and these are kind of the characteristics that, that maybe we can focus on, and I'll just read them here. But God's kingdom is a kingdom of sacrifice. It's a kingdom of victory through loss. It's a kingdom of the greatest becoming the least, of rejoicing through suffering. A kingdom of exaltation through humiliation. A kingdom of leading by serving, of living by dying. It is a kingdom where strength is found in weakness. Put simply, it's a kingdom that says, the greatest work when encountering an enemy, maybe someone who would trade your life for 30 pieces of silver, right? The greatest work when encountering an enemy or when encountering a neighbor who may or may not also be an enemy, you know, you don't even know. The greatest work involves wrapping a towel around your waist, kneeling down in front of that person and washing their feet. This is a remarkable kingdom with a remarkable message that runs counter to so much of, of what uh, the world tells us our life is supposed to look like. And when I begin to think of it that way, I take some time and I look back and I start seeing the kingdom of God show up all throughout the story of my life. And you know what, I got a bunch of examples written here and I may just kind of skip through them because you don't need to hear my, my uh, biography. But I think of the time as a high school senior when I used to get together uh, with a bunch of guys from, from this church and we meet on Friday nights, and we'd uh, get together and play music, and we'd worship, and we'd pray for just hours at a time. And I think of what a formative time that was for me, how it shaped me as a, as a musician, it shaped me as a, a friend, it shaped me as, uh, it shaped my faith, um, and it definitely, I, it. it uh, I, I see the, the moments where I, I felt like I was encountering a deep experience with something that was very divine. Anyway, I look back at those times, and I say now, the kingdom of God was there. I think at the time that I was completely broke and living in Austin, Texas, and I needed help to get somewhere, I was trying to come back to Missouri, and a good friend of mine, you guys might know him, his name's Brian Raynard, uh, he and his wife Dana and our friend Sarah, completely unprovoked and unasked, drove all the way from Bolivar, Missouri to Austin, Texas, in one day helped me pack up all my worldly possessions, all, all five of them, and uh, the next day drove us all the way back to, to Missouri. I look back at their generosity and their willingness to serve and to put my needs way ahead of their own. I know they were in a busy time of their life. They didn't have a weekend to give away, and they gave it right away. I look at the love that they showed, and I say the kingdom of God was there. I think of my kids excitedly bringing their money to church to put quarters in the jar to support programs for uh, for other kids living in poverty overseas. I think of their eagerness to be a part of something special. And to help somebody who's, who's like them, even, even in a very small way, and I look at those times and I say, you know, the kingdom of God is right there. I think of a number of hot June nights standing next to a bonfire at Knob Noster State Park, listening to whippoorwills, hearing the fire crackle, and witnessing camper after camper walk up front to share a prayer or a scripture or just to say something they felt like needed to be said to be brave and to confess something or to share something in the name of Jesus. I look at those times and I say, "Boy, the kingdom of God was there. I think back to my mom's memorial service held just over a decade ago in this very room. And I think of all the friends and the family from from all different corners of life coming together to celebrate and support and to grieve. I think of the worship that occurred that day and the laughter and the tears and the stories and everything that happened. I look at that and I say, the kingdom of God was there. I think of the hundreds of stories my sister used to tell me. She was a missionary in Central America. She would tell hundreds of of just wacky stories about meeting people, sometimes on the streets of Managua, uh, sometimes on a bus on Southwest Trafficway in Westport. She would talk about connecting with them and talking with them and loving them and coming back and seeing them again, praying with them. I think of the ways that she loved them and cared about them in, in a real and meaningful, impactful manner. I look at those stories and I say the kingdom of God was right there. And I could go on and on and on. And maybe I've gone on too long already. But this is a remarkable kingdom. And it is one that we should be taking very seriously. And it is among us, right? It's, it's, it's all around us here. So let's, let's pay attention to it. Let's be aware of it. We should take it seriously because if the kingdom matters, everything matters. I want to say that again. If the kingdom matters, then everything matters. Understanding the kingdom helps us understand ourselves, our place, our communities, and our ultimate purpose. It's like this kingdom focus really helps us to answer some of those big kind of cliched questions that we we encounter in life. Like, who am I? Why am I here? Uh, What's my purpose? What's the point of all this? And I don't know if those are questions you guys wrestle with. I've certainly asked a time or two, what's the point of all this? You know, why, why am I doing this? I imagine many of us are familiar with the scene in uh, the Gospel of John, John 18, where Jesus is speaking with Pilate during the events of Good Friday, and Pilate asks if he's the king of the Jews, right? That's a, that's a familiar scene. We just played it out a couple months ago on Easter. And Jesus rather famously responds with, my kingdom is not of this world, So as he's known to do, he kind of gives almost a cryptic response that doesn't provide the answer, the yes or the no answer that, that Pilate was looking for. And I kind of think that's an unfortunate way of reading that phrase almost. Because it's easy for us to assume that Jesus is saying, when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, it's easy to assume he's saying, my kingdom has nothing to do with this world, right? But in reality... That's, that's not true at all. I think we, we see it like, like this is just a holding place for everyone and everything, including himself, before the important stuff actually happens. But the kingdom Jesus is talking about is absolutely for this world. It is not from this world. And that's what he, he means when he says it's not of this world, but it's absolutely for this world. And I wanna explore that a little bit further here. The story of the kingdom is the story of all creation. It is our story, and, and part of, of understanding what the kingdom of God looks like and why it matters uh, is understanding our place in that story. And it is kind of, this is a story that's kind of commonly broken down into four stages. You may have seen something like this before. Uh, this isn't a perfect way of seeing everything. Obviously, no system really is, but uh, I think this is kind of a framework to help us just sort of conceptualize the story of creation and the kingdom, and uh, to that end, I think it's pretty effective. So, as people look at the biblical story, from creation to Genesis, in Genesis to Revelation, they tend to see, as we just said, four stages, uh, and and those stages are kind of these. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. Now, those are big, heavy words, or they can be, um, and this isn't a seminary class, which is good, because I couldn't teach it anyway, but I'll try to kind of zoom through this so it doesn't get too bogged down and boring. Um, But almost think of these as almost like four separate acts in a play, in the story of, of history. Creation, obviously being the first, Genesis 1 tells us the story of God creating all things and calling them good. He created his place, all of creation, but in particular in that story, the garden, and he created his people to exercise, he says, dominion over this creation while following his commands. This is a wonderful thing. Essentially, this was God's kingdom in action, right? God's, God's reign through God's people over God's place. God's place was the garden being run by his people under his authority. That was creation, right? Everything's going great so far. But what happens next? We all know the rebellion. Genesis continues and, and tells the story of the serpents and how humanity is deceived when Eve is enticed, not just by curiosity, but by, uh, by a desire to become autonomous to know as much as God, to become just like God. Essentially, Genesis 3 tells the story of humanity deciding to no longer take part in God's reign. We decided we're gonna do it our own way. We're gonna be like God. We're gonna make our own decisions. We're gonna exercise our own reign, and we don't need you. This was a breaking point in the story of creation, in the story of the kingdom of God. And so much of the biblical narrative is about that breaking point and how God moves deliberately and intentionally and sometimes imperceptibly, but, but always perfectly toward the next two stages. Redemption is next. This is the stage we're all in right now. It's the stage where we're rescued. It's the stage where Jesus comes to earth and shows us how to live. But, but not only that, he shows us what God is like. He shows us who God is, who, who God represents, what, what life with God looks like. That happens in this redemption stage. This is where Jesus makes each of us new creations together. This is where we live right now. But it is not the final stage, as we can see on there. Restoration, right? In the end, Jesus will make all things new. He will judge sin and evil, and he will usher in an eternal age of righteousness and peace. So thank you for bearing with me. That's kind of our our four-part story. Creation, rebellion, redemption. Restoration, that's a pretty brief breakdown of of what that looks like. But I think maybe a little bit simpler way to kind of conceptualize that is through these terms here. Was, is, can, and will. We look at creation, we look at the way things were initially, we see what was meant to be, what was perfect. We move to rebellion and we see what is Right now, we see what is in the world. We look around and we can observe it in our own hearts, unfortunately, and in our homes and, and in our, all around us. But Jesus comes along. He declares the kingdom of God is at hand and he says, this is what things can be like. And ultimately, we anticipate this restoration when things will be made perfect again. We see what was, we see what is. We see what can be, and we see what will be. Essentially, we live in the world that is. But for the last 2,000 years since Jesus has been here, he has given us a way of understanding and living into what can be. And we kind of live in between the tension of is and can. And this is none of this is revolutionary stuff, but I, I like it. I, I think it's a helpful framework for me when I'm just experiencing the world and realizing, you know, it is like this, but boy, it can be. What can it be? I know what it can be with Jesus. And I know what it will be someday. It'll look a lot like, like, like what it can be. I, I want to live into this reality of can right now. And that's where the kingdom of God is found. What can be is so often a complete departure from what is. Uh, when we, we talked about the, the, the narrative that the world tells us but versus the narrative and the reality of the kingdom of God. It's such a departure. But that gives us a purpose, doesn't it? It kind of answers those, those deep questions that we might have. Living in a kingdom that takes the brokenness of what is, moves it to the beauty of what can be, gives us incredible meaning. When we say that the kingdom matters, we are saying that everything matters. And all of that kind of leads us to this. We don't have a kingdom without a king. All of this stuff is great. Scripture references... Thinking about my life and where I've seen God's kingdom showing up most present. Um, thinking about living in a new reality, looking at little graphs like this and, and understanding certain ideas. All that's great, but none of it means much if we don't see our king, right? If we don't know our king, if we don't bow before our king, if we don't serve our king. Jimmy Treat does a really good job of um, describing who our king is. And I, I won't try to improve on what he's done. I will simply read to you a list of of who our king is, of what he does. And these are, these are just pretty basic concepts, but well, they're good to be reminded of from time to time. Our king demonstrates God's love. He reveals God's justice. He satisfies God's wrath. He displays God's wisdom. He magnifies God's glory. He redeems us from slavery. He forgives our guilt. He cleanses our shame. He declares, our, our, he declares us righteous. He ransoms us from death. He adopts us into his family. He conquers Satan. He eradicates evil. He defeats demons. He reconciles the world. He renews creation. He unites heaven and earth. This is our king. He is incomparable in every way. And sometimes I think we should ask ourselves, I should always ask myself this, do I truly think of him that way? Right? Because if I did, wouldn't that lead me to follow him and serve him in a way that reflects that? Do I, do I really want to live into what can, as my king shows me, as my king calls me to do, or am I trying to hold on to the benefits of what is and maybe still reaching out for the benefits of what can be? In other words, and I'll ask this of all of us, do we try to have our cake and too? it too? We want to live in the best of is and can. And sometimes I think we can probably do that pretty successfully or we feel like we can. Are we embracing rebellion while trying to exploit redemption? Here's why I feel like the easy sermon would be to talk about serving two masters and talking about sins like lust and greed and gossip and envy and so on and how those can become idols and masters and how we can guard against them. And that would be a very good sermon. Um, It would be one that I need to hear on a regular basis. It's one I've heard a number of times. But I've had something on my mind ever since I knew that we were going to talk about this. And I just, I have to share it with you. This may be a little bit of a soapbox, and I may be a little bit vague, just because I don't want to get myself into any kind of trouble. Um, So I apologize in advance, but I I think it's terribly important um, for all of us to remind ourselves of this. I heard a sermon several years ago that talked a lot about a guy named St. Anthony of Egypt. And I won't belabor any of this, but he was born into a very, very wealthy family. He lived during the time of Emperor Constantine in Rome, so this was a long time ago, I think the third century. Um, and there were some interesting contrasts between sort of his life and the coinciding life of the church in Rome. When Anthony was a young man, he heard the story about the rich young ruler and was compelled, believe it or not, to sell all that he had and to give it to the poor. And that's, if, if you're not familiar with the story of the rich young ruler, that's that's what Jesus tells this guy to do. This guy uh, is wealthy and powerful and comes to him and says, uh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's, he's seeking what can be. And Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he's like, I can't do that. And I would suggest he's holding on to what is. And so he leaves very sadly. So uh, St. Anthony of, of Egypt hears this story and says, I, I can't do that. I got to follow Jesus. His parents die, he gets this massive inheritance, and what does he do? He sells everything, and he gives it away to the poor. And eventually, he actually leaves society, he moves out to the desert, kind of founds uh, one of the earliest monastic cultures, uh, monastic societies, and and gets away. Pretty much denying any kind of um, personal comforts and and wealth and that sort of thing. Anyway, meanwhile in Rome, Christianity had become promoted under Emperor Constantine, and many things changed as a result, where it was once rather dangerous to be a Christian. Now it was commonplace and safe and easy. It was even the social thing to do. And to a degree, we we hear that and we think, oh, that's wonderful. But really, I want to describe the situation a little better. And I've, I've got a quote from a historian named Rodney Stark. It's on the screen here. He says this, he's talking about that that culture of Rome. All of a sudden, everyone who was Roman thought of themselves as Christian. The narrow gate of which Jesus spoke became a gate so wide, the entire Roman Empire could stroll right through without ever dealing too deeply with the implications of Christian baptism and covenant under the cross of Christ. The earliest Christians were politically persecuted because when they confessed Jesus is Lord, the implication was that Caesar was not. Now, they were quite happy to say our our power and affirmation and security is ultimately meant by God. But we also quite like having the Roman army provide our security, getting invited to the imperial palace as our power, and having our religion be the official religion of the empire as our affirmation. I want to leave that up there for a minute. Essentially, you have this transition where people take a kingdom that is very much not from this world right, as Jesus said to Pilate. And they marry it to one that very much is from this world. And that's only a natural thing to do, I think. But what happens is its offspring is something that maybe says, Jesus is Lord, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, but maybe it really lives like Caesar is Lord. What you ultimately have is a church that got comfortable with power, with significance, with status, with ease, with comfort, with favor in the public sphere, you have a church that's, that's trying to serve two masters, trying to hang on to the benefits of what is while simultaneously trying to be about the benefits of what can be. And this is where I want to be careful, but does any of that sound like us? When I came, I, I came across this a couple of years ago, and I thought, oh my. The earliest Christians were persecuted because when they confessed Jesus as Lord the implication was that Caesar was not now they were happy to say our power and affirmation and security is met by God but boy we like having the power of the army we like having the security of, of the palace we like having uh, the affirmation of, of being kind of the, the, the dominant voice in our, in our world today I don't, want, and I don't want to be too wrapped up in a quote from a historian but my goodness we live in a time where political lines in the church are pretty easily drawn write down denominational lines, and on either side of those lines, either side of those lines, there exists a terrible, terrible danger, a tendency to define our cultural victories as God's victories, to define our our political and cultural defeats as God's defeats, and a tendency to define our political or or social enemies as God's enemies. Now, to be totally fair, and you don't need me to tell you this, there are certainly issues where it's crystal clear what the kingdom of God would say about a a, a person or a, a policy, but I think I hope that you guys know what I'm getting at. No matter our stance on a variety of, of issues in our society today, we serve a king and his kingdom, now and forever. Of course, those things matter. Campaigns matter. Votes matter. Opinions matter. Uh, sharing your opinions matters. Debate matters. Truth matters. Serving your community matters. All of that matters, of course. But ultimately, we only have one king. And there is a a danger in in trying to find two, I think, from time to time. Our king is not protected by any institution of man, by any constitution of any nation. His kingdom is not defended by any particular amendment in a bill of rights. His kingdom does not rise or fall based on who lives in the White House. His kingdom does not win or lose based on whether or not our preferred uh, party or or candidates control anything. His kingdom does not wait with bated breath for the decisions of the Supreme Court of the United States. His kingdom existed yesterday. It will exist tomorrow. And it will exist for all time. And he will reign as our king now and forever. Every other nation, every other empire has risen and fallen and every nation that exists today, every one of them will rise and will fall but the kingdom of God will endure forever. And I think we especially, I, maybe, I, sometimes I don't know if, if things shift and culture shifts or if I just get older and start seeing things more for what they really are, or I don't know. But more and more and more there's a tendency that for, for many of us in the church to forget that. And I just wanna be clear, I'm not talking about being passionate about politics or being motivated by faith or serving in any kind of public office at all. I'm, t- I'm talking about forgetting who our king is. I can't help but wonder if some of us in the church today are doing the same thing that St. Anthony saw in his day and age in Rome. We confess that Jesus is Lord, but we quite like having our security, our power, and our affirmation come from the kingdoms of this world. The title of this sermon is Our First Allegiance. That's a line that's taken from a song by a guy named Derek Webb. He was a, a member of the band Cademan's Call. They were I don't know if any of you remember them. They were a pretty successful Christian group a couple decades ago. He, uh, he had a, a solo career for a little while. Uh, he's kind of on his own journey now with his, with his faith and everything. But, but for a time, he wrote some, some very Christian-centric songs that were very provocative, um, one of them is, is called A King and a Kingdom, and that's where this, I, I, this line makes me think of that. And I won't quote the whole thing to you, but the chorus is this. He says, so my first allegiance is not to a flag or a country or a man. My first allegiance is not to democracy or blood. It's to a king and a kingdom. And of course, this applies to every realm, not just uh, our social structures, Right? Our first allegiance is not to a job or a spouse or a hobby or a number in our bank account or a professional sports franchise as much as I would like it to be. Our first allegiance is not to sex or food or friendship or anything else no matter how good and beneficial it may seem. Our first allegiance is to our king and his kingdom. So the question is do we follow our king? Jesus talked about it constantly. And again, to be very clear, that's not to say that nothing else matters. The thing is, if we follow Jesus, everything we do matters, as we said, because everything we do is done for him. The Apostle Paul really spells this out for us, I think, beautifully in Colossians 3. He's talking about uh, a lot of things in life. He talks about our work and he talks about our homes and he talks about our minds and our bodies and how all of those things, all of that matters to God. How God is making all of it new in sort of that, this, this can, this, this uh, redemption phase that we're in. And this is Colossians 3. In verse 16, he, he kind of, I'm sorry, verse 17, he kind of sums up so much of what he's saying. He says this, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Everything. Let me read that again. Everything. Everything. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Reply to that email in the name of Jesus. Right? Watch the baseball game this afternoon in the name of Jesus. Fold your laundry or pile it in front of the machine in the name of Jesus. Sing your songs in the name of Jesus. And, and, and when I say in the name of Jesus, we don't just mean tagging on, in the name of Jesus, amen, at the end of our prayer. We mean as the ambassador of Jesus. And we'll get into that more as the as series progresses. To come in the name of somebody means to come representing that person. So we come in the name of Jesus. We live our life in the name of Jesus. Sing your songs in the name of Jesus. Vote however you need to vote in the name of Jesus. Run your business in the name of Jesus. Talk to your kids in the name of Jesus. I really need to do a better job of that. And on and on we could go. Prioritizing the kingdom does not minimize other aspects of life it puts them into perspective for us. CS Lewis said, when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. Well, wow, I love that. First things are put first, right? What's the thing we're supposed to seek first? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is of the highest importance. It is the primary work of Christ to declare and facilitate God's reign through God's people, over God's place. It is, one of the, it is one of the highest importance. It has something to say about every aspect of our lives. It is ruled by our one true king. And I'm looking forward to, even though there's, again, we don't know when it'll happen, but uh, whenever we surprise you with it, I'm looking forward to kind of fleshing this out a little bit more. I want to kind of uh, wrap up here uh, by reading a, a pretty lengthy section of Colossians 1. And I'm reading this from the message. Um, ten years ago I would have been sick to my stomach like who's reading the message in church that's a wishy washy nonsense but it's okay I, um, I, I think it's okay uh, it, it says it in such a beautiful way that I, I appreciate very much the, um, just the poetry behind how Eugene Peterson puts this together Paul is talking um, to the church in Colossia about the message that he is sharing with them um, and he's kind of proclaiming to the church what that message is and this is what he said God rescued us from dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the Son he loves so much. The Son who got us out of the pit we're in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. We look at this Son and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this Son and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence, and he holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together, like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies. All because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. You yourselves are a case study of what he does. At one time, you all had your backs turned to God, thinking rebellious thoughts of him, giving him trouble every chance you got. But now, by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together, whole and holy in his presence, You don't walk away from a gift like that. You stay grounded and steady in that bond of trust, constantly tuned in to the message, careful not to be distracted or diverted. There is no other message, just this one. Our first allegiance is to our king and his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for coming, for declaring your kingdom, for inviting us into your kingdom, for showing us what that looks like, for showing us who the Father is. May we seek you first, may we put you first, and we follow you above all other things. We, we thank you that you are faithful. We, um, rest in that, that faithfulness. We thank you that you hold us safely and securely in your kingdom, in the reality of what can now be. As we look around the world and see what is, and, and so many of us look around and see an awful lot of what is right now that is so troubling, we thank you that you lead us in the reality of what can be. May we live into that faithfully, diligently above all else. Again, it's in your name that we are here. It's in your name, the name of Jesus That we live and that we move. That's in your name we pray. Amen.